The scriptures tell us that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. Aren't you thankful it's not up to you to find your own way home? We have enough difficulty navigating this temporal life, uh, the Lord leading and guiding even in that, but finding our way all the way home, uh, we would forever wonder. So the Lord is going to see us there. Thankful for that truth. I want you to to give your attention with me this morning. I'm going to do a follow-up sermon to what we looked at last week. Direct you to Colossians chapter 3. The first four verses of the third chapter. Last week, we considered out of Romans 5 and Genesis chapter 3 that everything that we lost in Adam's fall, that being his original righteousness, his communion and fellowship with God and his physical and eternal life, all of those are restored through our being united to Christ through faith. If you're sitting here this morning and you are a believer, you're a miracle of God's grace. It's the only way that we can describe it. He has performed a miracle in you. And before we get involved in this third chapter, I want you to, to just note and affirm with me the miraculous nature of this conversion, of true conversion. The Bible uses different language to talk about this transaction. We have come from death to life. We have come out of darkness into light. We have gone from living in the realm of having no hope now to having great hope. There are many different ways the scripture describes what has happened when the Spirit of God takes the things of Christ and makes application of them to us. And that is the normal way that the Lord works. The Spirit of God taking the things of God through His Word, the work of Christ, and making application of them to you. One of the ways that we ascribe all glory to God in our salvation is to realize we weren't smart enough to figure it out. The Lord gave us an understanding. He opened our eyes. He caused us to see, or else we would still be enslaved in darkness, unaware. But thankfully, that's not the case for a lot of us, and hopefully even more of us as time progresses. But since we're considering what we lost in Adam and what has been found by faith in Christ, I want us to take that a step further. We've been sanctified or set apart by faith, consecrated to the Lord in a sense. And now the scripture has expectations of us. Conversion is not an end in itself. Conversion does bring with it righteousness before God that cannot be lost. But that's not where it stops. We are to live out this righteousness that is given us. We are to, as Paul would write in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we are to walk in newness of life. And that's what 
Paul further instructs us in here in Colossians chapter 3. What does it look like to walk in newness of life? Your mind may be like mine. Sometimes I need things stated very simply for me. Just give me the one, two, threes, the ABCs of things. And that's what Paul does in describing the newness of life that has been given to us and the expectation of walking in it. You see that on the pages of the New Testament, don't you? That there is an expectation placed upon you to live in such a way as to bring all glory and praise to Christ who has saved you. And so I want you to read with me the first four verses of this third chapter of Colossians and then I'll pray and ask the Lord's blessing and try to briefly put these four verses in their place. So let's read them together. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these words, particularly in the expectation of them. Lord, help us to understand them. Would you give us a clear understanding of them even now? Lord, we, we want to know more fully what it means that our lives have been hidden with Christ in God. And when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. Lord, help us to this end. For in understanding it, surely we would give more praise and honor to he who is accomplishing it in us even now. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. The truth of God is meant to shape and form you. It's meant to shape and form me. The first two chapters of Colossians are the truth of God expressed, shaping, forming, molding through indicative truth what the person of God truly is. Chapters 3 and 4 of Colossians begin the application of all of those truths and directs, first of all, to the mind, to the mind that has been renewed. That's, that's the verse that we know so well out of Romans chapter 12, right? Renewing our minds. So it's no coincidence, obviously, that Paul begins here in directing us how to live in newness of life by instructing what we're to do with our minds. You've lived long enough to know that what you believe greatly affects what you do, how you live. And that's the way it should be. And since that is the case, we need to ensure that we are continually flooding our minds with the truth. Everything about the society in which we find ourselves immersed wants to suck the truth of God out of your mind. Sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes it's blatant. That's why it is such of such importance that we counter that 
with a continual flow of truth into our mind and heart from the Word of God. Just another word of encouragement to you. If you're not daily in the Scriptures, if you're not daily walking through the Scriptures and praying through the Scriptures, this Christian life is going to be incredibly frustrating. We've been given a great tool, a sword, that's how it refers, the scripture refers to itself, the sword of the spirit, and to our own peril and danger, we don't take up that sword as often as we should. So here Paul is directing how the Christian should view his mind and what he should fill his mind with and how he should occupy his mind. Two different spheres are at play, the heavenly sphere, the earthly sphere. And note this, that after the Lord has saved you, after the Lord has brought you out of darkness to, to light, after there has been real, a real and true work of grace in your heart, the Lord is going to now employ you. He's going to put you into his service. And in that, we're going to find some of the real reasons why he has converted us. Paul writes to Timothy in those pastoral letters, and in large part, he is wanting Timothy to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness so that he may be useful to the master. And that, that's applied to every one of us as, as Christians. We discipline ourselves in godliness so that we will be instruments more and more useful to Christ. Isn't that a desire of yours? To be more useful? To bring Christ more honor? To bring him more glory for the things that he has done in your life? You can take this a bit further if you want to with with sanctified mind and, and use the illustration that Jeremiah brings out that the Lord is the master potter. He is fashioning us and he is making us a vessel fit for his own use and glory and will in time put us to work in that for which we have been created. So I want you to see here in verse one, I want to call this the first point of these verses, the foundation of faith. And if we miss this, then everything that follows is going to be increasingly difficult and frustrating and will tend to lead to despair and will tend to lead us to fainting in the work, will tend to lead us in a place that we don't want to go. So the first point is vital and it's summed up in these few words, if then you were raised with Christ. You might say this is an unfortunate translation, but it's a translation found in most copies of the English scriptures. Just as fitting and perhaps even helpful, more helpful, would be to translate it this way. Since, therefore, you were raised with Christ. The word if here is not here to interject some form of doubt. Since is a much better way to understand since. You have been raised with Christ. These are the things that you are to do. Perhaps we need to go back just a bit into the second chapter to the, towards the tail end to see the, the difference 
the contrast that's being made. Verse 20 of the second chapter says, Therefore, if you died with Christ, from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, taste, or handle which all concern things which perish with the using. You might remember it was a couple of years ago that we studied through this entire book of Colossians. And one of the things that was plaguing the Colossian church was a call to both legalism and asceticism. They were experiencing the same pull that you and I experience, and that is to go back to a tangible list of right and wrong, do's and don'ts, And in the end, which we hope will lead to sustained righteousness. Paul's saying, do not entangle yourselves to these things again. You've died to all of those things. He calls them the basic principles of the world. He says they do have an appearance of wisdom. That's why they're so dangerous. On the external aspect and from the surface view, there appears to be some wisdom. Perhaps you know people like this who are professing Christians, but yet they are maintaining and trying to keep the feast days of the Old Testament. They're trying to return to the type and to the shadow of that which was pointing to Christ. And now that Christ has come, they want to return to those things because there is an appearance of wisdom in keeping them. But in reality, it's a denial of Christ fulfilling those things. And of the Messiah having come. This is the appearance of wisdom. And Paul says it is self-imposed religion. And even false humility. The ascetic side of this is the neglect of the body. He says these things are of no value against the flesh. I have a note written here in my Bible from when I preached through these things. As as. As gruesome as this may sound, there were those throughout church history that thought it was a positive, righteous thing to neglect the body so much and to be covered in such filth that lice would come and take up residence and they wouldn't try to rid their bodies of these things because of asceticism. This is what led monks to do monk-type things. There's an appearance of wisdom, some false humility. But you turn the page, at least in my Bible, and I'm glad it's, it's this way. You turn the page to chapter 3. And chapter 3 begins with the contrast. Based upon the truth of the 20th verse, you have died with Christ. Now he says, since then, you were raised with him. This is being built upon the foundation of faith. Let me give you a couple of quotations by some theologians that I hold in great esteem. The first being Curtis Vaughn. He says of this contrast, he says, an exhortation is here given to live an outward expression of daily life which corresponds to the deep experience which was truly theirs in Christ. To boil that down, what he is saying is Paul is here expecting us to live out in everyday life what we really are inwardly. To let it come out. To go a little 
deeper beneath the surface here, B.B. Warfield says, the exhortation is simply to an actual life consonant with our change of state. It is an exhortation to us to be in life real citizens of the heavenly kingdom to which we have been transferred. To be real citizens of this heavenly kingdom. To do the duties and enter into the responsibilities of our new citizenship. So you can think of the third and fourth chapter of Colossians in that way. We are entering into the duties and it's right of us as Christians who have experienced the grace of God to continue to speak of duty. We are entering into the duties and responsibilities of our new citizenship. Things are different for us now than they once were. Albert Barnes in his notes on the New Testament, he's helpful here when he says, verses 1 through 4 detail up for us the duty of settling the affections on things above. I don't know that we often think in those terms, the duty of setting the affections on things above. And he refers to it as a duty here because these, this comes to us in imperative language. These are language, this is language of command. Paul is saying, do this. These are not Holy Spirit recommendations. These are Holy Spirit expectations and commands. So back to Albert Barnes, he says, this is the duty since we were risen with Christ in Colossians 2.12, having been now made dead to sin in Colossians 3 verse 3, and soon to be made like Christ himself, that's the expectation of the fourth verse, when Christ appears, we will also appear with him in glory. He says, based upon all of those things, they should, we should, therefore, fix our affections on heavenly things. And the question here, begs asking, to what degree are my and your affections set on heavenly things? You, you know this, I know. Your affections tell on you. From time to time, we'll have one of our children come, sometimes with tears in their eyes, and tattle on another sibling. So-and-so has done this. That's the same thing your affections are doing inwardly and spiritually. They are tattling on you. Where do your affections really lie? Where is your heart really settled? If you are faithful to do an an inventory, an examination of your own heart, you don't have to look far. They will rise to the surface. They will come to the top and be easily and readily accessible for you if you're willing to notice them for what they are. So I want to move next to this, the quest, the seeking. Not only are these things to be built upon the foundation of faith, that's the first part of verse 1. The second part of verse 1 tells us to seek those things which are above. This is a familiar word in the New Testament. It's it's in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll recognize it when Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God. Later on, he says, seek and you will find. 
This word means to search for in hopes to find. If, ever, if you've ever lost of anything of value, if you've ever lost something that you greatly need, you search for it in hopes to find it. And you turn over every leaf necessary until you have exhausted yourself in looking for whatever this lost item is. That's the word that is used here, to seek. And it can literally be translated as crave. And I love that literal translation because I think it corresponds to the newness of our nature. In true conversion, new appetites come, new desires come, new desires to be obedient to the Scriptures and to Christ come. And with these new desires, we are to crave certain things. You know what a craving is. A craving is an intense desire for something. Most often we use it in the realm of of physical appetite. I'm craving this kind of food or or that kind of food. And sometimes in in a... Extreme situation, that that craving can lead you to action, right? Men, if you've you've had the experience of living with a pregnant wife, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes cravings seem to come out of nowhere. And you ask the question, why are you craving that? But here, this craving does not come out of nowhere. It corresponds to the newness of your nature. You are to seek and to crave those things which are above. Now, here is where we have to be careful. We don't want to speak where the Scriptures don't speak. And I'm not going to suppose a lot of things that are above, but I do think the context here helps us to some extent. It tells us to seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. So it's telling us to seek heavenly things, to be heavenly minded. And probably even as I say that, that old trite saying has popped into your mind of some people saying that we need not be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. You've heard that, right? But notice Paul is saying the direct opposite of that. Paul is saying, do not be so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good. That's the problem most of us have. Though we might want to claim that first saying, the, re- the reality of it is very often we're so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good in the, in the helping of the building of the kingdom of God, being useful to the master. If our mind is not where it should be, then our hands aren't going to be employed where they should be either. If our mind is not where it should be, then our mouth is not going to be employed where it should be. And you can follow that down through all of your members that Paul lists in Romans 6, which are no longer to be presented as instruments of slave to sin, but instruments of righteousness. And it all starts in your mind. What are you seeking? And just one one thing that is readily seen here is that we are to be seeking Christ's lordship. Notice where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. That's a reference to his, not only his ascension back into heaven, but his session being seated at the right hand of the Father, signifying that his work is complete. It's finished. It's done. 
He had accomplished all of those things that the Father had given him to do. We are to be seeking eternal spiritual verities, truths. The prayer of our heart should be, as we were taught to pray by Christ himself, your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And we must be keenly aware of the opposition of heaven and earth. Sometimes we we let that line blur a little too much. I realize it's a virtue in some things to see in gray, but it's also virtuous in other areas to see distinctly in black and white. Now, God give us wisdom. God give us great discernment in drawing those lines. But sometimes the scriptures leave little to interpret. There is a great opposition between things heavenly and things temporal, earthly. And this is where the contrast comes out. Paul is telling us here to seek those things which are above. These eternal truths and verities that correspond to the scriptures. One of the greatest helps to seeking things that are above. Outside of of being very disciplined in your own personal walk with Christ, one of the greatest helps to seeking those things which are above is to surround yourselves with other people who are doing the same. Bad company does indeed corrupt good morals. Read the book of Proverbs. How often is the young person warned not to keep company with fools? The same applies to mature adult Christians. If you want to seek those things which are above, surround yourselves with other people who are seeking those things which are above. And then you can have the kind of relationships where iron sharpens iron. Then you can have the kind of relationships where the older men and the older women are instructing the younger men and the younger women. And we can have what I believe was Charles Spurgeon called heaven on earth, both in church and family life, to seek those things which are above, best sought in the assembly of the redeemed. And I'm starting with myself here, starting with myself, and I'm convinced the vast majority of Christians think too little of the church of Jesus Christ. We have all kind of preconceived notions and ideas, past experiences, hurts and pains from being amongst the people of God and are somewhat calloused to the teaching of the scriptures concerning Christ's church. And perhaps we're reaping the consequences of what has been decades long now teaching that the church is some type of parenthetical insertion in the economy of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The church, comprised of both Jew and Gentile, has been the apple of God's eye from the beginning. It's not a parenthetical afterthought. The redeemed of God have been the apple of his eye from the very beginning. Seek those things which are above. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Notice the second verse. Set your mind on things above. The word set here can literally be translated as cement. Cement your mind on things above. 
And you know what it's like to have a, a cement truck pull up, dump out its load, you form it where you want it, give it enough time, and it's going to harden. That's, that's the word that is here. But notice it's in a positive sense. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Again, this is where our affections tell on us. And just be honest. What, what most excites you? What do you get the greatest joy and pleasure from? And then immediately... Take that thing and ask of it, is this something from above or is this something that belongs only to the temporal sphere, to the earthly sphere? Far too often, we will find that it's something that belongs to this sphere only. A love of whatever it is. Now, let me temper this a bit by saying God has given us good things to enjoy on earth. We don't want to go to the asceticism side of this and deny any good blessing. The scriptures tell us that every good thing, every perfect thing has come down to us from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. Jesus asked the question, if, if your child asks of you bread, are you going to give him a serpent? In the same way, the Lord knows how to give us good things. But when he gives good, earthly, temporal gifts, we need to see it from the right perspective and see it as having been given a stewardship and be just as willing to let it go as we were to receive it. That's the hard part be just as willing to give it back to him as we were to take it from him. That helps in setting our mind on the things above. This, this echoes what Paul would say to the Philippian church in part when he says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Contemplate these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. We get to the interesting part of these first four verses of this third chapter, verses three and four. And it's several times through the years I have attempted to preach the truth contained in these verses. And every time I walk away like I will this morning, just feeling like I've scratched at it a little bit. Read those verses again with me. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I want you to to view this through the lens of the miracle of your own conversion. Verse 3, you died and your life is hidden. That part of you which was once characterized by sin and the effects of it, having been enslaved to it, 
the deadness of your own heart, the cold and callousness in which you viewed the things of God, and the rejection which you might have often offered towards those things. Those days when you held Christ in not in high esteem, but when you held him in high reproach. When you saw his, his life, his death, his crucifixion, all that he endured for sinners, when you saw that not as the greatest thing that he could have ever done for you and given you, but when you saw that as foolishness. That's the part of life that is hidden with Christ and God. That's the part that has been redeemed. That's the part that has been covered. That's the part that has been forgiven. That's the part that has been washed by the blood of Christ. All of the filthiness of our self-righteous rags has now been hidden with Christ. He's offered himself as a covering. You can hearken back to that third chapter of Genesis. As soon as Adam fell, what did he know? I'm naked, I'm ashamed, and I need to be covered. So he took a leaf and tried to hide himself. But now the scriptures tell us that we have been hidden with Christ. We are, we are immersed into Christ. And that's, that's the greatness of what water baptism symbolizes, right? It's the immersion into Christ. All that is old all that has been defiled, all that has been defined by sin is buried. And isn't that what Paul said in the second chapter? For you have been buried with Christ. You've been placed in a tomb. And you've been raised to walk in newness of life. Perfect symbolism here. But yet Paul says it this way. You've been hidden with Christ. To have a hiding place. That old, old hymn that we sang last week. Jesus Christ, your hiding place. You have been hidden there. What have you been hidden from? You've been hidden from the fierceness of God's wrath. You are no longer an object of God's wrath. You're in that safe place. You've been hidden from the eternal snares of the enemy. And you can think of it this way, but don't let your mind go too far. But in the sense that the adversary who's, who now is shooting fiery darts at you to cause you to stumble, in a very real sense, you've been hidden in Christ there too. And one day, one glorious day, we will be fully hidden in Christ. What is partial here is, is full in the next. Partial in this life is full in the next. And notice that our life being hidden with Christ, and I can't fully explain this to you. I'm still looking at it wondrously, even as I'm reading it to you. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. To be hidden with Christ in the very Godhead, in the, in the person of God. That's the greatness of your salvation. And again, I realize we can barely begin to, to fathom it, but 
And it, it makes me wonder and really, really hurt for those who believe that you could lose this kind of salvation. And it really exposes that whole line of thought. If you believe, you can lose it. If you believe that you contributed anything to it, results in the belief that you can lose it. So we are here confessing that I contributed nothing to my salvation except the sin that necessitated it, right? I contributed nothing to my salvation, therefore I cannot lose it. If salvation is really and truly all of Christ, and it is, then I need not fear losing it because my life is gone. I have died and I've been hidden with Christ in God. I've been raised with Christ. And then the the blessing of the fourth verse, when Christ, who is our life, appears... When Christ, who is our life, appears. Just meditate on that. When Christ, who is our life, appears. And notice in these two verses how everything is about Christ and how we are in, in the background, consumed in Him. We find our identities no longer in ourselves, but our identities are, are bound up wholly with Him. Our righteousness is not our own. Our righteousness has been given to us. We possess it fully, but it is a gracious gift imputated to us by faith. And so the fourth verse, by when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Surely this is part of what Paul means to seek those things which are above. Remember Remember the literal meaning of the word, crave. This is reflected in the end of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which, just a word on that, when you study the book of Revelation, it's a revealing of Christ, not a concealing. It's a revealing of Him. That's why John says towards the end, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's the craving. That's the desire, which is born from seeking the things which are above. It's real easy to do an inventory here. Is your craving for Christ's return and for your own appearing with Him so intense that that's the real cry of your heart, come quickly, Lord. Come quickly. I don't remember the the context of the conversation and at the moment who I was having it with, I, I don't even remember this week, but whomever I was speaking with, maybe it was one of you. You were talking about a certain issue and the end of it was just come quickly, Lord. Come quickly and, and get us out of this mess. Gather us into your barn. We're ready. That intense craving comes from a heart that is seeking the things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. May he help us in further disciplining ourselves to do just this and to do so unto his glory. Let's pray.
Father, we're thankful for your word, thankful for the instruction that we gain from it. Lord, and I sense in my own heart, and I suspect others here do as well, how often we fail in this very thing. How often our affections are set upon things on the earth. How often we crave temporal passing things. And how often we even love them, though we're told clearly, do not love the things of the world because they're passing away. So, Lord, we're here asking for mercy, here asking for more grace. We're here asking for true repentance. We're here asking, Lord, that you forgive us our sins and trespasses as we confess them to you. Father, help us in this specific area of setting our minds on things above. And Lord, teach us more of what it means that our life is hidden with Christ and God. And when he appears, we will also appear with him in glory. How we yearn for that day. Lord, make it the intense craving and desire of our heart. Under the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen.